A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored and dedicated to the memory of Rabbi Avram Chaim Tanzer by the Zunenshine family of Montreal. Rabbi Tanzer just uh, recently passed away several months ago, and I think that um, Rabbi Avram Tanzer is actually a good prism to examine the growth and the development of the South African Torah community. So even though it's uh, primarily a, the story, the history of South African Jewry in a larger sense, but I do want to zoom in on the life and accomplishments of Rabbi Ram Tanzer at some point in this episode to be able to see through that. Um, the um, In the micro, we can definitely get a better perception and understanding of the macro. He's also his, his wife, um, uh, Marsha Tanzer, is she living be well, has an excellent memoir um, that she wrote about about their life in South Africa and whatever, and all the family background and, and so on. Um, so South African Jewry is always uh, something that I was always fascinated by. It is several unique aspects about uh, South African Jewish history, um, but uh, I never was able to really get into it and and uh, get the whole story. And, and the reason is, is because I can never understand anything that South African people say. They have this funny accent, and and it's just too hard to understand. So I listened recently, what got me more into it is I actually listened to an interview that uh, the Sherba Avram Tanzer uh, conducted, describing a bit of his background and, and accomplishments there. And he grew up in Williamsburg, and he has this great Brooklyn accent, and all of a sudden... South African uh, Jewry was opened up to me and I was able to look into it a little bit more. So what actually makes the history so unique there? Um, There's several components. Just want to mention a couple of them. Not going to cover it in a comprehensive fashion. But number one, it's a diaspora community where where you don't have the, you know, let's, for example, the two main Jewish communities of the world, um, Israel and the United States, are a huge mix of of every 
of every uh, diaspora, every every country in the world where Jews were. You can find in these big urban centers of Yerushalayim, of, of Tel Aviv, in the Tel Aviv area, of New York, of L.A., uh, Jews who originally originated from Poland, from Hungary, from Morocco, from Syria, from Iraq, from Germany, from uh, Russia, from everywhere else. Whereas the South African Jewish community is quite unique in that respect that it's predominantly um, Lithuania. Their origins are from Lithu- Lithuania, Lithuanian Jews, Litvaks, Litvisha Jews, however you, however you like to say it. Uh, it's not completely. There is a lot of Jews who um, originate from from Germany and from other countries. There are Polish Jewish origins there as well. Um, but primarily, I think it, I don't know exact numbers. I think over eighty percent is um, you know has a Lithuanian Jewish origins. Another unique aspect is that there's again, unlike almost any other country in the world, there's almost no Holocaust survivors who ended up in South Africa. And the reason for that was simply an immigration policy by the uh, South African government at the time, which we'll get into because the uh, the government had ramifications for the Jewish community in many ways. Um, but um, they did not allow any immigration, and the refugees who had survived the Holocaust were not able to make it to South Africa you know, some individuals did, but they were individuals, and they were the exception. There was never an influx of of survivors like there were into Israel, like there were in the United States, to Australia, which is you know a great example. There's a huge amount of survivors there, and the influence that the that the European generation and the survivor generation had on post war Jewish life is is definitely has a huge impact and a, and, and a, a long-term impact on all those other countries, whereas in South Africa you don't have that. Um, another unique aspect of South African Jewry is that, and this, this, you know, this, these statistics can blow your mind, has the highest percentage of the Orthodox community in the world. Um, it's at least the number, you know, it's hard to know the exact numbers, and it's also hard to define what Orthodox is or observant Judaism, you know, everyone has their own definition, but it's somewhere between a third and and uh, and know, even more, 60-70% or officially or nominally uh, observant or orthodox, um, literally the highest in the world, way, way higher than Israel or the United States or any other country that are, that the community identifies as observant or orthodox. I think the only comparison I was able to think of is, is pre-war Poland was about a third, um, what, what we, I don't know if we would call it Orthodox, we would call it Shemer Teru Mitzvah, uh, traditional observant Judaism. Um, so that's another very unique uh, uh, characteristic of South African Jewry. So where do they come from? So uh, South African Jewry come to early settlements, already from the 1800s and even earlier, Portuguese uh, hidden Jews uh, settled there eventually, then Dutch Jews. Um, and then with the big immigration from Russia in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, that's when the mass influx of, uh, of Jews arrives in in um, in South Africa. In 1880, there were 4,000 Jews in all of South Africa. And in 1914, when World War One breaks out, there are 40,000 Jews. So it 
grows tenfold. That's when the large, uh, large-scale immigration, almost all of them come from Lithuania at that time, which I'll explain what Lithuania means. It's certain parts of Lithuania, it's also Latvia. Um, during, also, there was a, a gold rush in the 1880s in South Africa that brought a lot of a huge influx of, of immigrants, you know, in general, and, and including many Jewish immigrants. And during the Boer War, or official, I think it's technically known as the Second Boer War, so there were Jews, you know, we think it's unique to World War I, but here there were Jews fighting with the Boers and fighting with the British. So you had, you had the Jews fighting Jews uh, in, in that war also, not only in World War I. Um, some supported, they're, they're called uh, um, Boer Yoda, Boer Jews or, or Afrikaner Jews. And um, the original Dutch settlers in, in those uh, Boer republics and then the British Empire, this is the, the peak of imperialism, British imperialism, Cecil Rose, the African continent, and this is, the, the Boer War is 1899 to 1902. So it's just at the turn of the century when when um, when uh, British imperialism is at its peak, and they eventually win the Boer War. In fact, there's another distinction which has a, a certain uh, uh, lasting effect on the world, which also is pertinent to Jewish history is that the invention of the concentration camp is in, it's, it's not an invention of the Germans during uh, the Nazi regime. It's the invention of the British during the Boer War. Uh, the British uh, locked up the Boers towards the end of the war in concentration camps where there was high death rates and disease. And, and the idea of the concentration camp um, is born there. So that's the an ominous beginning to the 20th century, the bloodiest century in human history. So the concentration camp is born literally at the turn of the century. Um, so we said the large-scale immigration, eventually the Jewish population of South Africa peaks at 120,000 before in mid-century it starts dropping due to emigration and Jews start leaving South Africa. Um, there's also in the earlier years, there's, they start to have tighter, restrictive immigration policies. In 1930, the law has changed, which effectively stops Lithuanian Jews from coming in that whole area. Um, there are German Jewish refugees running away from the Nazis during the 1930s who come by the thousands. Thousands of them come. So it's not only Litvish Jews, there's also uh, quite a substantial number of Yaki German Jews, and but in 1937 that gets cut off as well. There's stricter immigration policies uh, from Germany. Now there was rising anti-Semitism uh, in South Africa, which understandably it makes sense. There was racial anti-Semitism and Nazi sympathies. There was a group called the Gray Shirts, which were openly uh, pro-Nazi there, and and this is you know there's again this is a country that had strong nationalism and strong racial overtones, which in 1948, eventually translated into the uh, victory of the National Party and the apartheid uh, system. So they, the Jews, um, Jewish community, to a certain extent, especially during those early years, 1930s and 40s, did sustain um, elements of, of Nazi-influenced uh, anti-Semitism in there. So there are so many Litvaks and Litvish Jews living in South Africa at the time that some people called it a colony uh, Jewish colony of Lithuania, and they nicknamed Johannesburg Jewburg, and um, and uh, that, that's that's how the community develops. Many of the shuls, until today, many of the old shuls are named for uh, towns in Lithuania, Panevis, and, and, and all kinds of 
other towns in Lita, um, that, that, because that's where they they all came from. Um, and um, till today, it's like I said, it's 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 actually growing a large large largest Orthodox uh, Jewish community, very low intermarriage, um, but the um, the uh, so but which I mentioned was one of the uniquenesses, but in the, in the other aspect, um, the flip side of that, that the fact that there was no Holocaust survivors who arrived made it that all that growth and all that growth of Torah and Orthodoxy took place in an internal fashion, meaning there was no, almost, at least on a mass scale, there was no um, uh, outside influence. There were individuals who came, but no... Um, positive influx of, of, of outsiders and every all the development of the community was pretty much internal. By the way, there's also uh, Jews from Rhodes, uh, Sephardic Jews, who arrived in, uh, in South Africa as well. So there is a, a bit of a mix, but not, not much. Now, how, how did that happen? Why was Lithuania the one that, uh, that, that ended up in South Africa? Well, how did that happen? So it's, not, it's not 100% clear, but in general, how immigration worked was... Very often, was um, was there was a chain effect. Someone would end up in some place, and he would send back to his family and friends. And there are jobs available. They would help them out with jobs, send them, excuse me, send them money, um, notify them um, about what life is like there. And that seemed to have uh, a, have had a ripple effect, um, specifically for the original Lithuanian Jews that came. And so that eventually, um, it just worked out that uh, the predominant uh, predominantly the immigrants who arrived there were from Lithuania but it's interesting is that it's from a specific area of Lithuania this is usually overlooked um, Lithuania or the cultural Jewish Lithuania not exactly the country of Lithuania because um, it's all Russia at this time anyway in late 1800s till World War one uh, is is in any many different areas the area that's today Belarus, and even parts of northeastern Poland are are culturally Jewish uh, Lithuania, all the way down to Brisk and the whole area uh, east, all the way to Minsk, and um, and uh, but that's not the that's not the area that that South African Jews originate from. They come from the more western, northern areas of Lithuania, the places that the Jews called Jamut or even Kurland. Today's Latvia and northwestern Lithuania, the areas of of Panevis, Tels, Salant, uh, Tavrig, Shadova, uh, um, Kelm, um, though that that whole northwestern region, which is that's that's where it came from. Not you know you know the you know all the way till Kovna east. That's the furthest southeast that they'll get. They won't even get. Till Vilna, and definitely not till the area of of Minsk and Mir and Velozhye Novartik, not that area. And so they come from a, a very distinct region of of Lithuania. And um, in fact, the Panevijerov, or basically Kahneman, had a very very strong and close affinity for its South African Jewry. He would visit very often. I'm talking about in the interwar period when he was still the Rav. And in, in Panovich, he was already fundraising all over the world then, and he would come often to South Africa. And then, of course, in the post-war, he was there very often. He loved South African Jewry and even made a prediction that came true 
that a, a wise man is, is greater than a prophet. And that was the Panovich Arav. The Panovich Arav said that South African Jewry is going to come back to orthodoxy and traditional Jewish life one day. He said because they have retained the, the refined characteristics of Lithuanian Jewry. And they have the midas, the, 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 char- the character traits of the glory of Lithuanian Jewry. And therefore, it's just a matter of time before their kids get the proper Torah education and they're going to all come back to traditional Jewish life. And he made that prediction when, when there was strong Jewish identity, but not a lot of strong Jewish observance in, among South African Jewry. Um, many South African Jews eventually started to move away to the United States, to Canada, and to Israel. In fact, the most upscale, wealthiest neighborhood in the entire state of Israel is Savion, right north of Tel Aviv, a beautiful, gorgeous neighborhood, big, huge private homes and swimming pools and country club. You'd never even believe that it's Israel. And the reason is, is because it was built and 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 uh, envisioned by uh, South African Jewish emigres. And they're the ones who founded the place of Savion and, uh, and built it up. So South African Jewry, um, because they had uh, experienced anti-Semitism, because they were integrating into the nationalistic and and somewhat racist um, South African establishment, especially the Afrikaner uh, South African establishment. So they are very often um, leaders in the or vocal about uh, against apartheid during the time that it was founded, and then throughout that during that whole uh, time period, there was one woman, in fact, a fascinating, amazing woman, somewhat. Uh, not, not as well known as she should be, a real uh, um, accomplished uh, a woman by the name of Helen Suzman, and she was a, an, an anti-apartheid activist uh, her entire life. She was born to Lithuanian Jewish immigrant parents, and she eventually took on the government, the whole national party, and the whole apartheid system. And she served as a politician for decades. She, in fact, she was the sole representative of the Progressive Party for many years in the Parliament, for 13 years, I think, in the Parliament itself, which was dominated by the racist National Party. And she sustained in her personal life because of her policies and because she was outspoken, anti-Semitism, anti-woman remarks, racism, threats. Her phones were tapped. For years and years, she fought all the apartheid policies. She opposed all the legislation um, consistently and in the face of all odds and even risked much by passing on information to the media about abuses done under the apartheid system. It's really, she's an incredible story. Another famous uh, Jew who came from South Africa, didn't really live there much, was Abba Ibn, eventually the foreign minister of the State of Israel. He's also the ambassador to Washington, the ambassador to the UN. He was the the voice of the State of Israel for the first 30, 40 years of its existence. He grew up in England, but he was born in Cape Town. So he was from a South African Jewish uh, Litvish family also. Um, of course, the diamond industry is South African, but its Jews were involved there as well. And the De Beers uh, company uh, was controlled and is, or still is, I think, but for many, many years, de- definitely uh, was controlled by the Oppenheimer family, a yucky German-Jewish family that uh, assimilated and converted to Christianity, but they're originally a Jewish family. Ernst Oppenheimer was a German Jew who eventually 
converted. He's a billionaire he's in the diamond and gold mining industry. He founded the Anglo-American Corporation together with J.P. Morgan as an investor, which is not bad to have as an investor. Um, not the bank, the original J.P. Morgan, the person. Um, he eventually controlled the De Beers uh, diamond industry. And um, he was also involved in politics, in South African politics uh, during during the early 1900s. And his son, Harry Oppenheimer, was one of the wealthiest individuals in the world. He was an industrialist, a philanthropist also. He himself, again, was born Jewish and even had a bar mitzvah, but uh, also converted to Christianity. Um, but he also he continued controlling the De Beers uh, company. His philanthropy, in fact, included Zionistic causes. And he's the reason that Israel, till today, uh, less today, but the diamond, the diamond industry is changing, but, um, is, but Israel became a center for the diamond trade. How did he do that? He's, he's, he's responsible for that. He would steer raw diamonds to Israel to develop the market. Um, so he, he, uh, that was like part of his, his sucker as well. His son, Nicky Oppenheimer, continues till today, is wealthy, diamond industry, philanthropy. In, in general, the, uh, South African Jewish community, um, again, from its, from the late 1800s, from when these immigrants arrived from Lithuania to, to South Africa, um, already then they were involved in the, again, they had moved to South Africa. They didn't move to Israel with the first Aliyah. And they're, but even then they're involved with the Chayvavet Zion movement, the Lovers of Zion movement, and they become a very Zionistic community. It's probably the most Zionistic community in the world across the boards, like the Orthodox and the, and the, like I said, the more assimilated elements of the community as well. Um, big supporters of Israel. Very, very interesting. And in fact, it's interesting that the relationship that the state of Israel had with the South African government, especially after, um, most countries in Africa, uh, severed diplomatic relations with Israel following the Six Day War and especially after the Yom Kippur War. Um, so Israel was kind of, isolated in the international community, so they sought out other isolated countries. Well, South Africa was isolated at the time because of apartheid. So Israel became uh, very close with South Africa, um, and they uh, had a lot of economic agreements, and heads of state was to visit each other, um, and, uh, and, and South Africa was able to, uh, I don't know if this is uh, <laughs> something to be proud of, but South Africa was able to continue the apartheid policies because of its relationship with Israel and a few other countries who were willing to continue diplomatic and economic uh, relations with them during the 1970s and 80s when they were ever more isolated in the international community. So we go to some of the prominent individuals who lived in South Africa over the years. There was um, Rabbi Yitzchak Kosovsky, Shachar, the brother-in-law of Rabbi Chaim Grzynski. He was the father-in-law of Rabbi Yisrael Lvovitz, the... the uh, the son of, of, of the Mir Mashkiach, Rabbi Rucham, and um, Rabbi Yitzchak Kosovsky, um, t- there's, there's Kosovsky living in Israel, he, he himself uh, learned in Tells, he was a rabbi in Ivya, where his father-in-law, Rabbi Chaim Ezra's father, was the Rav, and uh, before him, and he was a Rav in, 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 in a bunch of other towns in Lithuania, and then he became the rabbi in Volkovisk, and in 1933, he became the head of the Bezdin in Johannesburg, and his son, Reb Michal um, was to eventually follow him to South Africa. He was also Rav in Volkovisk. And, he's the, and, and Yitzhak Kosovsky was a recipient of many of the letters of Reb Chaim Eiser. In fact, he would accompany, when he was still in Lithuania, he would accompany Reb Chaim Eiser to many of his meetings. 
He was the one who wrote the first tribute to Reb Chaim Eiser following his passing, which is actually printed in Reb Chaim Eiser's uh, Sefer, Reb Chaim Eiser Grzynski's uh, Sefer, Achiezer. The Besdin of, of uh, South Africa, of, of Johannesburg, had some prominent uh, Dayanim over the years. There was another one, uh, Reb Yisrael Soloveitchik. Another Soloveitchik branch, what do you know? Um, he's a son, he was the son of Reb Avram Baruch Soloveitchik, which, who was Reb Chaim's older brother, Reb Chaim Brisker's older brother. In other words, he was the oldest son of the Beis Alevi. He was a Rav in Smolensk, which is deep in Russia. So his son, Rabbi Yisrael Soloveitchik, succeeded him as the, at the Smolensk rabbinate before he was uh, appointed uh, as a Dayan in Johannesburg. And he actually passed away on a visit to New York in the 1950s. So he's buried together with quite a few other Soloveitchiks in the Mount Judah Cemetery. The chief rabbinate of South Africa was founded in 1915, the first chief rabbi was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Leib Landau, who was a local rabbi who was made the first chief rabbi, despite the fact that the that we said that the strong Lithuanian reputation, but uh, this Rabbi Yehuda Leib Landau was a Galicianer, came from Brud in, in uh, Galicia. He was the first chief rabbi. So you have a Galicianer rabbi to a Lithuanian Jewish community, oh well. Um, but he was a descendant of the Naid of Yehuda, Rabbi Landau, so I guess that makes it okay. Um, he established the Besdin, and he's the rabbi for nearly 30 years. He's followed by a fascinating figure, Rabbi Louis Isaac Rabinowitz, who was from Scotland, and he was a rabbi in England and a, actually a chaplain in the British Army during World War II. He was on the Normandy beach by the invasion. In 1945, he becomes the chief rabbi of South Africa, and he's the head of the Besdin as well. He's also a professor at the university there, very Zionistic. He was very right-wing Jabotinsky revisionist uh, Zionist very outspoken, very political, and he, he publicly discarded his British war medals in protest of the British mandate policies in, in Palestine. Um, a big uh, statement. He publicly protested apartheid before it was socially acceptable to do so. And then he retires in 1961 and moves to Israel. And what does he do there in his retirement? He gets involved in politics. And he gets on to the Jerusalem City Council and as a politician. Uh, the next chief rabbi in South Africa was a British rabbi, Rabbi Bernard Casper, also a chaplain in World War II. And then he's followed by Rabbi Cyril Harris, another another Scottish rabbi. And this is during the tumultuous years of the end of apartheid and the transition to democracy. And he's a proponent of equal rights and democracy, close with Nelson Mandela, who actually called him my rabbi. And, and he spoke at Nelson Mandela's inauguration. And then he's succeeded by the current chief rabbi, which is not history, it's contemporary, Rabbi Warren Goldstein, and uh, which, in, you know, just uh, in, to put that in historical context, Rabbi Goldstein, the current rabbi, is testimony to the community's development because he's the first homegrown South African uh, chief rabbi educated in the Yeshiva Gedaila of, of Johannesburg. And moving on, so um, so the 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 education... Jewish education becomes a feature of the post-war period. Um, and that's where Rabbi Tanzer comes into the picture. The first school um, the, that, that gets founded in, in uh, first Jewish school, full Jewish day schools, founded in 1948. It's pretty late in the game. Um, nothing is founded pre-war. Till then, it was afternoon Talmud Torahs. And that's the King David schools, eventually several branches. And they become the first Jewish day schools catering to Jewish children a, a Jewish education. Eventually, there are American rabbis who arrive, several of them from Tells, um, like Rabbi Avram Tanzer, 
who we're going to get to in a second. Um, in fact, Ramatul Katz, the Rashiva tells, he had a strong connection to South Africa. His family, his parents, his six siblings had moved to South Africa with the droves of Lithuanian Jews at the turn of the century. He had stayed in Lithuania to stay in Tel's yeshiva. He visited them, though, in 1936. So he had seen the South African Jewish community up close during the immigrant years, and he always had a very positive view of the South African Jewish community afterwards, and this is why he pushed several of his students to go ahead and teach Torah in South Africa. So Rabbi Avram Tanzer is one of those who come. He himself was born to immigrant parents uh, from from Galicia, from uh, he wasn't from Lithuania, in the Lower East Side, and they moved to Williamsburg, and his father sends him to Tells in Cleveland. And he's there for 13 years, Baram Tanzer, 13 years in the glory years of Tells, uh, 1950 to 1963. He's there as a young teenager, and um, he becomes a close student of Rebellion Mayor Bloch. And he was especially close with their Matul Katz. And uh, close with the Matcha Gifter. He was a Chavrusa with her Baruch Saratskin. Remember, this is really the early years in Tells. And he was close with her Chaim Stein. His uncle was the executive director of Tells, or Baron Paperman. And, and he becomes a real Tellser. And um, in, in fact, he, he related in an interview that he conducted that in 1955, when Tells moved to, from downtown Cleveland to Wycliffe, Ohio, outside of the city, so they had a Shabbos of the dedication of the new building, and Herb Aaron Cutler, and Herb Yaakov Kamenetsky, and Herb Ruderman, and the Panavish Rav from Israel, all came for Shabbos to Cleveland, to Tells, which made a huge uh, impression on Rabbi Tan, the young Rabbi Tanzer at the time. He was later also close to the Rabbi Feinstein, he met the Lubavitch Rebbe, he, he knew a lot of the greats in the United States at the time. So he arrives in South Africa, and his Rebbe, Ramatul Katz, is urging in 1963, He's 27 years old on a two-year contract to come to teach Torah in one of the yeshivas that had developed in the 1950s in uh, in South Africa. So there was, you know, several other rabbis who eventually arrived also, and who had also uh, 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 that had also come from Tells. But what's interesting is that when he arrives in South Africa, he discovers that the that there were Tellsers living in South Africa. There were Layman, who had learned, who had studied in Tells in Lithuania. Here he was a product of Tells in Cleveland, and here he finds that there's a few, not many, but there's a group of ones who had studied in Tells in Lita. Not only that, but there was a few who had grown up in South Africa and gone from South Africa to study in pre-war Lithuania in Tells Yeshiva. So here you had, you had, uh, which, you know, we know that there were Americans who did that. We know there were German students who did that, went to the Mir. And here you had South Africans before the war, a few, not many, who went to study in Tells in, in, uh, in Lita, where their families had come from that area. One of them he points out was Reb Shalom Merkin, who was a Balobas living in South Africa, and he had smicha from pre-war Tells. He was the one who founds this yeshiva that he had come to become a Rebbe in. In 1950s, 1953, the yeshiva is founded called Yeshiva College, which is a great name to have for a yeshiva because this way you get along with everyone. When you talk to, to talk to people who appreciate the the title, wow, Yeshiva College, so you could pretend that it's really Yeshiva College. When you talk to the 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 yeshivish crowd, you tell them, you know, look at South Africa, they what you call in America high school, we call college. So it's a Yeshiva high school. It's not college. 
So you get, you get the best of both worlds that way. So he founds it in his house. And the Rosh Hashiva, the one who's founding it together with him, is Remichel Kosovsky, the, who had, who had learned in the Mir Yeshiva before the war. But the, but his father, Yitzhak Kosovsky, was the head of the Bezdin, like I said. So he, you're talking about someone who's a nephew of Reb Chaim Eiser. And the Yeshiva College from its beginnings had a strong Tells connection. The roots of Yeshiva College were with B'nai Akiva, which was pretty much the only religious organization around before there was this first Yeshiva. So they, 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 they had formed the basis, the B'nai Akiva, which was of course affiliated with the Mizrahi, and was a Zionist organization. They found the Yeshiva, but it also looked to Tells as its role model. Um, which in a way is, is, is because in, especially in South Africa, Torah is above politics. And, and Torah study and Torah scholarship is above politics. So Ram Tanzer comes on a two-year contract that he never left. Um, a, an extension of the two years to 57 years. Um, there, he stayed there well over half a century. He builds up the community uh, and the Torah institutions together with Michal Kosovsky, and later he brings in a fellow Telzer of Israel Goldfein. They develop the community, the whole Glen Hazel area of Johannesburg. Um, in fact, Michal Kosovsky, who had founded the yeshiva 10 years earlier, before Rabbi Tenzer arrived, was escaping Europe, and he got to South Africa because of his parents. His parents, his father was, the, was on the Besden there, like I said. And before he goes, he speaks to the Panavizharov. He also spoke to Mayor Barilan. He was in touch with them. I don't know if he spoke to them. He was in touch with them. And, uh, and uh, Panavizharov had a like I said, was closely connected to South Africa. Um, in fact, there are many people from the Panavish area, like I said. In fact, when the Panavish would come to South Africa, he would marry off. He would be the Masader Kedushin by many weddings, people who waited for him to, to arrive. Barilan also was, had visited South Africa in 1931, so both of them were acquainted with the community, and Rebecca Kosovsky uh, sought out their advice. And both of them gave him the same advice. He, they said, don't invest in the adults. Don't try to get them to become more committed than they are. It won't work. Invest in the youth, open a yeshiva. And that's what Remichel Kosovsky did. Invest in the future. And um, Rabbi Yosef Brunner was also a rabbi there who made it happen. There was a whole team, a lot of people, rabbis, laymen together. And they started a high school without a day school. There was no feeder. There was no one to feed. But they, they, they did it. They worked on it. And you know, South Africa were always proud Jews. They were not reformed Jews, not assimilated um, very strong Jewish identity who tried their best. And that's the Panavizharov's prediction that their children were co- will come back. Why? Because they're Litvish Eden. Um, and it happened, a total transformation. So the, um, the Yeshiva College brings in Rabbi Tanzer to, uh, to become, um, the uh, rabbi there. And he didn't want to go. He said, Jewish boys from Brooklyn don't do Africa. But his wife convinced him to go. So he eventually came. The vast majority of South African Jews were not particularly observant, um, but they, but they, uh, but so, so it wasn't exactly Williamsburg, like I said. Um, so in 1963, he comes to this this desert and he uh, and he comes to build it up. He subsequently founded a girls' school, a boys' elementary school, a nursery. He brought in other rabbis, or Baron Pfeffer and his his friend or Israel Goldfein, who both founded further yeshivas there. He becomes a builder, a pioneer. He knew how to get along with all people, all types. Hundreds of students, shiurim for all ages. 
eventually seven Shabbos minyanim just on the yeshiva campus, and then he goes on to found, a, he becomes a congregational rabbi, not just an educator, not just a rosh yeshiva, but also a, the Glen Hazel Hebrew congregation, which started with zero and uh, built it up into 750 families from the mid-1960s. Um, so it's not an exaggeration to say that his arrival in the 1960s impacted well beyond the two institutions that he was personally affiliated with, and it wasn't limited to that. It wasn't about his direct involvement. It signaled a massive change in the spiritual development of the entire South African Torah community. Among other things, he was president of the South African Rabbinical Association. He served on the executive of the South African Zionist Federation, was active on the United Communal Fund. He was an executive committee member and eventually honorary vice president of the South African United Mizrahi. And then he was um, on the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, and uh, and so on and so forth. He was involved in many of the yeshivas. And you talk about today, there's there's schools and shuls and yeshivas and Abes Yaakov and, and uh, Koilel and Chabad is very active there. The flourishing of Jewish communal institutions and educational institutions. Rabbi Israel Goldfein, who he had brought in, eventually leaves and starts the Yeshiva Gedayla of Johannesburg in 1978. So the growth of the community just sprouts. And he was happy. He never saw anything as a, as a competition. To, to be, there's, Rav Ram Tenzer, when, when, uh, when the Yeshiva Gedoyla was started, he was the happiest man around. Rabbi Israel Goldfein was starting a real, you know, high level Yeshiva, which was going to produce, uh, rabbis for the community, which was going to produce Talmud Chacham. And, and, uh, and that was, that was the, the goal. And the successful goal, the, the what was reached um, through efforts of people like Abraham Tanzer and others, until today, where we have this uh, flourishing um, South African Torah community based on on a rich and and a transformative uh, Jewish history in down way down in Africa, from Lithuania to Africa. So this was the Yehuda Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGabra.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, sponsorships, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.